You know, it's a good piece of outro music, and it's a good piece of intro music. That, of course, is Midnight in Moscow, a favorite of this show. I presume that version was Kenny Ball and his jazz men. You know, with all the protests going on around the country right now, it might be worth reminding ourselves, as the New Yorker did in the current issue, that in July of 2017, in an address to law enforcement officers in Suffolk County, New York, Donald Trump told them to use more force when taking suspects into custody, saying, like when you guys put somebody in the car and you're protecting the head, you can take the hand away, okay? I presume this is the sort of thing that uh, Colin Powell is finally fed up with. The former Secretary of State has now stated that he will once again not vote for Donald Trump, calling the president's approach to politics dangerous for our democracy and asserting that Trump has drifted away from the Constitution. Said Powell, I'm very close to Joe Biden in a social matter and on a political matter. I've worked with him for 35, 40 years, Powell told CNN State of the Union, and he's now the candidate, and I will be voting for him. Colin Powell has said that Trump lies all the time and that people don't hold him accountable for it, which is certainly true. Trump, for his part, always a gentleman, responded on Twitter calling Powell a real stiff and his favorite, highly overrated. But I have to say, looking at Trump's tweet, which said Colin Powell, a real stiff who was very responsible for getting us into the disastrous Middle East wars, just announced he'll be voting for another stiff, Sleepy Joe Biden. Trump added, didn't Powell say that Iraq had weapons of mass destruction? They didn't, but we went off to war. Ouch. Well, you know, Donald Trump, like a stopped clock, can occasionally be right. To which we add, and, and so we would say is the former Secretary of State, Colin Powell. Something I like even more than that was the comments made by retired Secretary of Defense, James Mattis, who said in a statement he was appalled by Trump's handling of the protests that have followed the death of George Floyd, saying, Donald Trump is the first president in my lifetime who does not try to unite the American people, does not even pretend to try. Instead, he tries to divide us. And you know, when a guy nicknamed Mad Dog Mattis finds that the president is just too divisive, you got to wonder. We're witnessing the consequences of three years without mature leadership. We can unite without him, drawing on the strengths inherent in our civil society. This will not be easy, but as the past few days have shown, we owe it to our fellow citizens, to past generations that bled to defend our promise, and to our children. Noted CNN, the comments from Mattis are a significant moment for a man who has kept mostly silent since leaving the administration. The retired Marine General had been pressed many times to comment on Trump, troop policies, the Pentagon, and other current events, and had always refused because he didn't want to get involved and be a contradictory voice to the troops. Instead, Mattis always insisted he had said everything he wanted to say in his resignation letter. And until a few days ago, he had held to that view, but Mattis has become so distressed by the events of the last week that his views on speaking out changed. And of course, you know, the president would respond to this by his usual method, tweeting. And he said, probably the only thing Barack Obama and I have in common is that we both had the honor of firing Jim Mattis, the world's most overrated general. I asked for his letter of resignation and felt great about it. His nickname was Chaos, which I didn't like, and I changed it to Mad Dog. His primary strength was not military, but rather personal public relations. I gave him a new life, things to do, and battles to win. But he seldom brought home the bacon. I didn't like his quote-unquote leadership style or much of anything else about him, and many others agree. Glad he's gone. As I say, 
always the gentleman. Behavior has gotten under the skin of long-time arch-conservative George F. Will, who also has announced that he'll be voting for Joe Biden in November. Now, I have to confess, I've never been a huge George Will fan. In fact, I remember many years ago, I believe it was The Onion doing a parody of a George Will column, titled it, Why I Prefer the Feudal System. But you kind of have to like his strong start in the piece, which is, quote, This unraveling presidency began with the crybaby-in-chief banging his spoon on his high chair tray to protest a photograph, a photograph showing that his inauguration crowd the day before had been smaller than the one four years previous. Since then, this weak person's idea of a strong person, this chest-pounding advertisement of his own gnawing insecurities, this low-rent leer... Raging on his Twitter, Heath has proven that the phrase malignant buffoon is not an oxymoron. Ouch! And he closes by referring to Trump's tweets about Joe Scarborough, hinting that Scarborough is a murderer. Said Will, those who think our unhinged president's recent mania about a murder two decades ago that never happened represents his moral nadir have missed the lesson of his life. There is no such thing as rock bottom. So assume that the worst is yet to come, which implicates national security. Abroad, anti-Americanism sleeps lightly when it sleeps at all, and it is wide awake as decent people judge our nation's health by the character of those to whom power is entrusted. Watching, too, are indecent people in Beijing and Moscow. Well, still the cold warrior, George F. Will, but he's got a point. And I think at this point we need to say a few more words about the infodemic raging in conjunction with the pandemic. The Economist had a few things to say about it. The Economist notes that conservatives appear to be more likely than liberals to fall prey to misinformation. Keep in mind, The Economist is quite a conservative magazine for the most part. They open their piece with this. Doctors need three qualifications. To be able to lie and not get caught. To pretend to be honest and to cause death without guilt. So wrote Jean Frossard, a diarist of the Middle Ages after an outbreak of bubonic plague in the 14th century. Fake news then meant rumors that the plague could be cured by sitting in a sewer, eating decades-old treacle, or ingesting arsenic. The infodemic around COVID-19, declared by the WHO in February, is not the world's first outbreak of misinformation. This time, the myths include the notion that the disease can be cured by drinking methanol, which has led to more than 700 deaths in Iran, and that it is spread by 5G transmitters, which has convinced arsonists in Britain to carry out more than 90 attacks on phone towers. The magazine notes that just as the virus lodges in people's lungs, dangerous ideas are infecting their minds. One big difference between the infodemics of the 1300s and 2020 is the rapid worldwide transmission of today's nonsense enabled by the internet. In March, a poll by Gallup of 28 countries and four continents found that all of them had at least 16% and as many as 58% of people thinking that COVID-19 was being deliberately spread. A clip of a film called Plandemic, which my listeners by now should be familiar with, which claims that a shadowy elite started the outbreak for a profit, was uploaded on May 4th. Within a week, it had been seen 8 million times. And its star, Judy Mikovits, had topped Amazon's bestseller list. 
Social media enables people to share truth news as well as the fake sort. But the fabulists seem to be winning. A study published in Nature in May found that although pro-vaccine Facebook users outnumber anti-vaccine ones, the anti-vaxxers are better at forging links with non-aligned groups like school parents associations, like school parents associations, so their number is growing faster. Among Americans, exposure to social media is associated with a greater likelihood of believing that the government created the virus or that officials exaggerated seriousness according to a recent paper at the Harvard Kennedy School. The piece notes that broadcasters in many countries need a license and must convince regulators that they try to report the news truthfully, as far as that goes. Few such constraints apply to the Internet. In April, Britain's broadcasting watchdog, Ofdom, censored a tiny TV station called London Live for airing part of an interview with David Icke, a conspiracy theorist who believes the pandemic is a hoax. The broadcast has been watched by only 80,000 people, yet at the time of Ofcon's ruling, 6 million had viewed the full interview on YouTube, which is outside of Ofcom's jurisdiction. YouTube has since taken the video down along with many others. Section 230 of America's Communications Decency Act absolves tech firms of responsibility in America for fact-checking uploaded content. But President Donald Trump wants to change this. Even if he's blocked by the courts, public opinion favors more intervention. In America, 84% say social networks should delete posts that they suspect contain inaccurate information about COVID-19. Of course, that's tricky to do. Last February, America's Surgeon General tweeted that face masks were not effective in preventing the general public from catching coronavirus. Now he says they are. Any hope that the pandemic could be politically uncontentious, has, of course, now evaporated. In March, Mark Zuckerberg said Facebook had no problem taking down things like, you can cure this by drinking bleach. I mean, that's just in a different class, he said. Yet, weeks later, Mr. Trump suggested that it might help to inject disinfectant. Facebook, Twitter, and YouTube have removed videos posted by Brazil's President Jair Bolsonaro declaring hydroxychloroquine an effective treatment, But so far, clips of Donald Trump praising and even claiming to take the hydroxy remain up. The firms say the difference is that Mr. Trump stopped short of saying that the drug was a proven cure. The magazine goes on to note that today's infodemic appears to be spreading more easily among the world's conservatives than its liberals. In America, the Pew Research Center found in March that 30% of Republicans believed that the virus was created intentionally nearly twice the share of Democrats. Last month, a poll by YouGov found that 44% of Republicans, keep this in mind, 44% of Republicans think Bill Gates wants to use COVID-19 vaccines to implant microchips in people. And 19% of Democrats agree. In France, followers of Marine Le Pen's national rally believe that the virus was made by design, twice the share among backers of the far-left groups. The magazine notes that the reluctance of so many conservatives to believe the conventional narrative of COVID-19 is part of a more general suspicion of mainstream sources of information. In some places in America, there's a yawning partisan gap in trust. The widest gulf concerns journalists and the next academics. And there is a chart here in the magazine showing, and I find this a bit startling, that asked which groups they thought were behaving in the public interest 
journalists scored like a 21 among Republicans and a 70-plus among Democrats. Academics did a little better with Republicans, about 46%, but among Democrats, about 84%. Journalists and academics, of course, have long been conservative targets. The fat, stupid, bloviator Rush Limbaugh, those are my words, not theirs, they called him an American talk show host, speaks of the four corners of deceit. The media, scientists, academia, and the government. And of course, conservatives have responded by turning to their own media sources, including among those might be OAN, which dug up the story that that a 75-year-old man was jamming police communications at a protest. Economist notes their own media sources have found there's money to be made in amplifying their fears. American talk radio punctuates paranoid chat with ads for dubious health remedies. Alex Jones, a Texas-based radio host, was recently ordered to stop selling toothpaste, which he claims kills the whole SARS corona family at point-blank range. Cable channels such as Fox News and websites like Breitbart have drawn audiences by bringing fringe theories into the mainstream. And of course, social networks' algorithms have steered people toward polarizing content, which is more likely to provoke engagement and thus generate ad impressions. In 2018, an internal report at Facebook warned that users were being pointed to divisive material, yet plans to highlight yes controversial posts, a project dubbed Eat Your Veggies, were sidelined, partly because of concerns that the changes would affect conservative users more than others, according to the Wall Street Journal. Here's a stat for you. 16% of Americans get their COVID-19 news directly from the White House. This is, by the way, a White House which has turned out an executive order against Twitter. The Economist described it as hastily drafted, legally flawed, and unworkable. But uh, Twitter did have to finally respond to Trump's uh, posting unsubstantiated and false statements. The company put warnings on a pair of tweets which the president said, quote, There's no way, zero, that mail-in ballots will be anything less than substantially fraudulent, unquote. In the second article in The Economist, they note that social media firms are not liable in America for the content published on them thanks to Section 230 of the Communications Decency Act, the CDA. To many, the executive order seems like a blatant attempt to bully Twitter, Facebook, and other big tech firms into abandoning any effort to fact-check the president's online utterances ahead of the November election. It's pretty clear at this point that Mark Zuckerberg is not intending to, ro- uh, to rock the boat in regarding President Trump's re-election. Last week, he criticized Twitter for fact-checking Trump's false claims about mail-in ballots. By the way, you should keep in mind that uh, Twitter did not in any way censor the president's tweet that said, when the looting starts, the shooting starts. They didn't seem to feel that was crossing the line to incite violence. Zuckerberg's rather disingenuous comment on all this was that unlike Twitter, we do not have a policy of putting a warning in front of posts that may incite violence because we believe that if a post incites violence, it should be removed, regardless of whether it is newsworthy, even if it comes from a politician. He closed by saying, I strongly disagree with how the president spoke about this, but I believe people should be able to see this for themselves because ultimately accountability for those in positions of power, can only happen when their speech is scrutinized out in the open. 
Radio Parallax cannot confirm that in another discussion with Fox News, Zuckerberg advocated the right for people to shout fire in a crowded theater. This is rather scary because it's pretty well acknowledged at this point that Facebook's size has made it the dominant outlet for political discourse in America and elsewhere. And that means it has to be more wary than Twitter when moderating content, as it is more vulnerable to accusations of political favoritism and thus to scrutiny by lawmakers, which they're keen to avoid. The Economist notes that the company Mr. Zuckerberg runs also has to manage the threat of becoming the target of antitrust investigations, particularly in America. Later on in another piece in The Economist, they note that tech firms more than other companies have to be careful not to antagonize their mostly millennial employees, particularly the best software engineers who can easily find work elsewhere if they are unhappy. The mostly left-leaning workers are increasingly upset that bosses are not doing enough to stop the spread of misinformation, or worse, by politicians and others. By the way, there was a mini-rebellion over at Facebook, as many employees came forward to state publicly they did not agree with their boss's stance on all of this. But we'll have to see where that goes. He's still the boss. All right, we've got a little bit of time left in today's program. I thought I might use it to take a detour into a disturbing article that appeared in the New York Times Magazine, a piece by Michael Steinberger. It's titled, How the Stock Market is Failing America. The author notes that the market is doing a terrible job of allocating capital for economic growth, but it's doing a really good job for funneling wealth back to the richest investors. And you know, I know people from a lot of different political persuasions, from the left to the right, people that call themselves socialists, people that call themselves capitalists. But I think no matter what your ideology is, taking a look at the stock market provokes some rather necessary questions we might do well to try and answer. The author notes how at the beginning of the COVID-19 pandemic, and he's referring to March, he was communicating with an investment banker friend of his. He was convinced the stock market would have a major downward adjustment. And of course, on March 9th, the Dow Jones Industrial Average sank 2,000 points, the biggest one-day loss since 2008. But soon afterwards, the markets began to rise. Steinberger was dismissive, asking his investment banker friend, are you enjoying the suckers rally? He notes his skepticism only grew when he saw Jim Cramer, who, yeah, is still around on CNBC, saying that bears like me were betting against science and basically selling the country short. By then, the stocks had climbed 3,000 points in about a week, to which he said the market now seemed impervious to bad news, while surging even on the flimsiest pretext noting that his mood had turned bitterly sarcastic. He added that by this point, the market's rebound had become a source of morbid fascination for many. How could it be that stocks were heading higher in the face of a global pandemic and what's shaping up to be the worst economic downturn since the Great Depression? Wall Streeters were quick with answers. The Federal Reserve was pumping more than $1 trillion into the markets to stave off a financial meltdown. And besides, with bond yields at record lows, investors didn't really have any plausible alternatives to stocks as places to put their money. To which he added still, it was jarring, even macabre, to watch the market soar while tens of thousands of Americans were dying of COVID-19 and millions were losing their jobs as a consequence of the nation's economic shutdown. 
He notes, even before the coronavirus attack, there were some trends that called into doubt how well the market was facilitating economic growth. Financial legerdemain played an outsized part in the vaunted bull market that took the Dow to almost 30000 in February. The run-up in stock prices clearly didn't mirror the fortunes of most Americans, a fact laid bare by COVID-19, but did greatly increase the fortunes of wealthy Americans, who have by far the largest stake in the stock market. They also happen to be the people best positioned to ride out the crisis, which raises a question. Is the market detached from reality, or does it simply reflect the reality of those most heavily invested? He goes on to note that even with most of the country shut down, almost 100,000 Americans were now dead and some 38 million were out of work. Why was the stock market going up? Said Bill Ackman, a billionaire investment manager, the market was heavily weighted to a small number of companies, Amazon, Apple, Google, and Facebook that were positioned to become even more dominant than they were before the crisis and whose stock prices were rising in anticipation of that. Weak public companies were being culled. The virus kills older people, people with comorbidities, people with other health issues, and the same thing is true in business. The virus kills off companies that were structurally impaired already, while strong ones were poised not just to survive, but to prosper. By the way, it should be noted that these big tech companies, which are the ones (laughs) whose stocks I just mentioned, are feeling extremely confident that not only are they not going to be reined in in the future, they're going to be more powerful than ever. Jeremy Siegel, who teaches at the University of Pennsylvania's Wharton School, notes that people confused by the market's recovery were overlooking something else. The sector of the economy being hit hardest by the crisis, the small business community, was not represented in major stock indexes like the Dow and the S&P 500. The market tracks the fortunes of big companies, not mom-and-pop shops. From a societal standpoint, Siegel said the carnage on Main Street was terrible. But the stock market is unmoved by sentimentality, and the closure of a corner coffee shop means one less competitor for Starbucks. It's said that the primary function of the stock market is supposed to be the allocation of capital to help companies grow. But here's something I did not know, and perhaps you did not know either, dear listener. Fewer and fewer companies seem to want the market's help. In 1997, there were roughly 7,500 publicly traded companies in the U.S. That number has since fallen by half to around 3,600. How was it the stock market lost so many listed companies at a time when the economy was growing so much larger? And where have they all gone? Some are no longer in business, while more than a few have been swallowed up through mergers or acquisitions. Lately, the decline has been driven by the growing allure and financial muscle of private equity and venture capital. Private equity is now a $5 trillion market, having increased threefold over the past two decades. This piece notes that the appeal of private capital is obvious. Firms can obtain the funding they need without having to meet what they see as the onerous regulatory requirements of the public equity markets or having to answer to pesky Wall Street analysts. But ask the piece, if companies are increasingly meeting their financial needs elsewhere, it seems fair to ask what exactly is the point of the stock market these days? The growth of high-frequency trading in which players dart in and out of the market seeking to profit from the tiniest price discrepancies certainly lends credence to the idea that the market is now little more than a glorified casino. 
But it gets worse. Some observers contend that it actually serves a more nefarious purpose, that the market, instead of directing capital to its most productive uses, has essentially become a mechanism for draining capital out of the economy in order to funnel ever more of the nation's wealth upward. This is being done, goes the argument, primarily through stock buybacks, companies repurchasing their own shares, reducing the number of available shares on the market in order to raise the price. This practice was effectively banned after the 1929 crash because regulators saw it as a form of stock manipulation. But that restriction was lifted in 1982 as part of the financial deregulation that started under the Reagan administration. During the 80s and 90s, shareholder value, the idea that a company's prime obligation is to generate returns for its owners, became a mantra of American business and executive compensation was increasingly linked to a firm's stock price. Buybacks surged. According to Goldman Sachs, buybacks constituted the single largest source of demand in the stock market, which was also the case in two of the previous three years. This was a period in which the stock market gained about 65%. To the extent that buybacks helped fuel the run-up, it suggests that the market was really just a hall of mirrors. If any of you have an opinion on this piece, which we hope you will read carefully, please drop us a line at info at radioparallax.com. We welcome feedback. All right, we've got a couple minutes left. Let's do some science. If you've ever looked at a map of the Pacific, and we hope you have done that on occasion, you will notice that the Hawaiian island chain actually extends far to the northwest above the group of islands we think of as Hawaii. Perhaps some of you have noticed a couple of small rocks out there in the Pacific that are called Gardner's Pinnacles. Well, if you have, and we hope you have, you may be surprised to learn that those little pieces of rock are actually the top of the world's largest volcano. It has long been thought that Mauna Loa, the top of the Big Island, represents the world's largest volcano, but studies now reveal that what they're calling Puhahono, is the world's largest, with twice the volume of Mauna Loa. So yeah, think about it. The world's largest volcano, just now discovered. And yes, Mr. Merlin, we are allowed to say Puhahonu on the air. I better check that. And final item, scientists now think they have an explanation for the Tully Monster. According to New Scientist, In 1966, an animal was discovered in fossil beds from Maison Creek, that's in Illinois, left scientists saying, wow, it doesn't look like anything we see today. It had a streamlined body, a bit like a worm, with with holes that resemble gills along the side, a horizontal bar mounted on top of it, a fin-like tail, and an angled neck with pincer-like appendages. I gotta say, the picture in the magazine looks like a cross between a sock puppet a hanger, and a cuttlefish. It's long been thought that this creature might have been some sort of snail or worm, but recent <laughs> recent research is pointing in the direction of a vertebrate, with the closest living relatives perhaps being the jawless fish like lampreys and hagfish. And aren't you relieved? And we do hope that you will look up a picture of this thing just for laughs. You can look it up either under Tully Monstrum Gregarium or simply the Tully Monster. No, and in case you're wondering, we know of no connection between the Tully Monster and the Monster Mash. 
However, Mr. Maryland does intend further research. Just as soon as he gets done producing this show, which is Radio Parallax, I'm your host, Douglas Everett. I do want to note in closing that my closest living relative is neither a lamprey nor a hagfish. But just as soon as he's finished with his research on the Tully monster, Mr. Millen intends to look at that one also. We'll see you next week. Well, my monster from his slab began to rise, and suddenly, to my surprise, he did the, mash. He did the monster mash. The mash. It was a great.